You ready, mate? I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Let's do it. All right. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle, and this is the Acquirers Podcast. My guest today is Mark Jones of Pragmatic Capital. Mark and I met last year, uh, have had a series of fascinating conversations because Mark has an unusual approach to picking stocks, and it works. It's made him the top-ranked analyst in Zero on a last 12 months basis. Uh, we're going to hear from him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Mark, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Toby. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. So you and I met, uh, when we first met, you described yourself as a contrarian, and I, I was—I got to say—I was skeptical because I hear that a lot. Everybody's a contrarian, including me. But right. uh, as we talked, uh, it became clear that you really are doing something um, unusual. So, can you just g- give us a little uh, a flavor of how you approach an investment? Right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely know that everyone says they're contrarian. You know, that's kind of like you know the rule of thumb that every investor should say, right? Um, but I think that I am truly contrarian in that any investment that I'm looking at, I am directly going against the herd as measured or assessed by uh, how the stock has behaved um, in the last 12 months or so. So if the stock is going really well, I'm not going to go long that stock. You know, I'm, if I'm in it, then that means I'm, that I'm short. And if the stock is doing terribly, you know, they're down 60, 70%. Well, I'm going to go long. So that way we can just clearly say, okay, well, that's contrarian because you're objectively against the herd. Um, that's how I like to you know, invest because I believe that you get the biggest bang for your buck that way. Whereas if you're putting in the deep research and you're right about the company's economic trajectory, well, you get the, bis- the biggest reward once you're proven right because if you're going against the herd – then that means that the current price is a reflection of current expectations. But if their expectations are completely wrong, well, that means that the stock's price is going to go in a completely opposite direction. So, so how are you, you're looking at a stock is down a lot, then how are you kind of making the uh, assessment that the market has it wrong? And what's your insight? Right. So I have a four-step research process. And this is, I would see as how I vet or I audit the market's point of view. Um, you know, I find that there are a lot of situations where you know a, a stock will come up in you know the level one of my process, which is more screening. So I have an algorithm that basically does um, financial statement analysis that I would conduct myself, and you know it returns indicators for all of the stocks in the universe that I'm looking at um, that look attractive or, you know, just not attractive here. And what that screener is really looking for is a divergence between fundamentals. We're talking about, you know, revenue trends, revenue trajectory and uh, profitability and profit trends and profit trajectory. 
and what the stock is doing. So if we can start there, then we can say, okay, well, clearly, you know, if the company's doing well based on the numbers and the stock's not doing well, then that means that the market is predicting that the company will not do well going forward. So that's that's an easy step to kind of, you know, interpret the market's predictions. You have to use inference there. But beyond that, there are a lot of situations where I could say that I could see where the market's coming from, where, you know, stock is down 60, 70 percent and a company's revenues or, you know, EPS uh, you know, there's, they're growing right now, but if you do a little digging, you can see, okay, well, I, I can see where the market's coming from here. There, there's no story here, but if I get through level one and I'm looking at the financial statements and I'm looking at the headlines and I see, you know, no, I don't, I don't see where the market's coming from here beyond just speculation. Then I move it through the process two through four. And what that process is centered on is basically getting an understanding of that company's I call it the economic ecosystem to understand what's really going on. Aside from the stock market, what's happening on a fundamental microeconomic level? And you can go really deep there. That, that's where you can get in the weeds and get lost. But that whole process is to kind of come to a point of view on if the market is right or wrong. Well, why don't you give us an example? So we, we've discussed several of your positions. Um, uh, give us an example of a stock and then walk us through the process. Okay, so... Let's see. Let's, let's, let's Wait, Weight Watchers was one we discussed. Yeah, we, we, we could think of Weight Watchers. Okay, so Weight Watchers, this is an example of more of a, of a turnaround story, um, whereas the stock responded in a more delayed fashion to the turnaround. So for a while, you know. What, 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 what date are you, what date are you, uh, when, did you, when did you find it? When are you sort of looking at it? I found Weight Watchers around February 2017. So right, right before their Q4 uh, earnings call. Um, that's, that's where they were flagged in the algorithm. And what really stood out about Weight Watchers was yes, for a certain period of time, they were just in a, in a free fall, um, revenue earnings per share, you know, was just, just falling at a constant rate of about 25% quarter after quarter. And then all of a sudden that shifted and, you know, it, it, the, it, you know, the, 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 the negative growth decelerated. And then you saw in the last two quarters, I believe, that it actually accelerated and that growth accelerated. And it wasn't a lot, but it was still, okay, there's something here. You know, these numbers don't just come out of the blue. There's some economic substance for why a company was in free fall and then things are turning around. You couple that with the fact that the company had about uh, short interest that was about 80 or 85% uh, free float. That, that, that really stands out to me. And so with that, I said, okay, well, you know, I, I, I've heard of Weight Watchers before. You know, I thought they had a broken business model from just my recollection of the company. But again, I, you know, I had to point my, I have to put my point of view aside and say, okay, well, let's go look at the data because I hadn't looked at the data at the time. And once I started doing research, I saw that the company had completely changed their business model. They had um, aligned it more with the times, with what the consumers wanted, which was more of an integrated approach to weight management. So. The content was stale. You know, they had the same content, same approach from, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Things are changing now. You have a lot more connected devices. You have a lot more technology. There's a lot more motivational content in weight management activities. So basically, they realigned their their go-to-market strategy for the times, got Oprah front and center. A lot of people knew she was affiliated with the company, but she started to be in the commercials talking about her experiences and how it's not just about weight loss. It's a lifestyle change. And, you know, it's about wholeness and wellness. And that's really, you know, key right now in the environment. So in doing the research and actually seeing Google trends, you know, impressions on social media um, and then looking at the actual 
underlying operational data of you know the subscriber growth they also changed their business model to have more of a subscription based model which really helped and you look at the trends between operational data and financial data and you do a lot of quantitative analysis you know regressions and things like that to see you know what's the relationship here because if the operational data is positive well that's a great indication of future financial data and once i finished the research i saw hey listen you know the company lost you know 70 80% of its value over a period of years one one can say that that was just or not just you know that's you know the specific amount is not as important as the sentiment and i can understand that sentiment but once i did the research and say listen this is a new company and the market is just reluctant to accept that but the last step of the entire process is looking at what wall street's numbers are because a company that beats earnings estimates that's going to go well for them and sure enough i found that estimates were very conservative if you will and that's what happened you know, they beat estimates that week they went up about 50% and ever since then they've been on a tear outside of earlier this week but that's you know so it's had a, it's had a big tumble does that sort of pique your interest again is it something that you want to go back and look at in some depth well you know this was an interesting um, case study for me because you know it's one thing to do all the research on the front end and say this listen this this, this stock is mispriced expectations are wrong there's going to be some correction okay well, what, what magnitude of correction? When are you going to walk away from this and say, okay, you know, the story is over here? Because Weight Watchers ended up going uh, up about 700% from the time that I got in. And, you know, since then, it's, it's, it's gone up a little more, gone down a little more. And then last week, you know, they had a major fall. And I thought to myself, well, you know, how long would I have stayed in after the initial year? Because in the year I got in, it was up 700%. That's great. I think that it's all based on sentiment. And if, you look at sentiment, it's, it's positive. Okay, well, that makes me kind of, because I'm not contrarian anymore, right? So it's okay, but I can still ride this wave. Now, if earnings estimates, it's all, it all comes down to earnings estimates. If you find that earnings estimates were conservative based on your financial forecast, then go ahead. But if you find that the estimates are starting to be more aligned with yours, uh, you know, maybe it, 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 the stock can still go up, maybe not. But I'm not really you know, into that game because it's hard to predict that. But definitely, if you find that earnings estimates are starting to get ahead of the company, like a pendulum, then you know, I would get out. So it's really always going to be based on sentiment and expectations. So you're looking for uh, a stock that's sort of down a great deal and, and the, the underlying earnings story has changed a little bit. And then you'll go in and do this really deep research, which looks at their entire ecosystem. And I think the way that I sort of really understood what you were doing. I think you were talking about one of the cinema, uh, AMC. one of the AMC. So AMC was one that I really kind of, that was for me, that was the thing that really helped me understand what you were doing. So can you walk us through the AMC investment? Right, right, right. That was really interesting um, because AMC stock went down about 60%. That seems to be the sweet number for, you know, companies that I actually move forward with, uh, you know, not, not the 40%, 30%, you know, eh. But 60, 70, that means that there's, there's a, this is a live one. That's panic. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I love to be uh, on the other side of that so long as the data is there. Right? So when I look at AMC, and I, I, I'll be honest, again, you know, just as a consumer, my opinion of AMC is that, hey, listen, you know, streaming is presenting an, uh, an existential threat. Um, you know, Netflix is huge. Netflix is getting even bigger. Movies don't seem to be that great these days. You know, but this is all just you know, consumer perspective, right? I didn't do any real research. This was just as a consumer, but I thought to myself, hey, listen, 
you know, based on the algorithm, this there looks like there's a divergence here. You know, put your own personal views aside and go and do the research, just like I did for Weight Watchers. And what I found was really interesting, something I did not know, is that the, of course, AMC's performance is, AMC is a derivative on the box office, right? So, yes, they, they have uh, other um, lines of business, but it's related to attendance, right? Like food, food and beverage. So if you really want a handle on AMC's operational trajectory, you have to have a handle on the box office. And while you read the headlines, you read what the quote unquote experts are saying, no one can predict the box office, so on and so forth. But actually, there's an organization by the name of Box Office Mojo, and they aggregate all of the data for movies back to, I think, 1999 based on studio, release date, all of that. And. I love data analysis. You know, I went to Carnegie Mellon and the focus at Carnegie Mellon is, is quantitative analysis, extracting meaning from numbers. So I looked at that as, as a gold mine. And what I found was that the box office was actually cyclical. The box office, you know, you could see if you chart it out, you would see two years up, one year down, two years up, one year down. And then you start to look at uh, the, the, the earnings calls of Disney, which is the largest studio to see, well, what are they saying? This is that economic ecosystem analysis. I think it's really important to get outside of the company you're looking at and look at the, the, the companies that they're, that they're interacting with because no company exists just in isolation, right? So with that, you found that Disney was saying the same exact thing, that Disney actually planned for 2017. So I found AMC in 2018. Uh, so this is after the 2017 year, which was down. Deem, uh, excuse me, AMC, excuse me, Disney. Um, actually expected 2017 to be down because they were planning for a blockbuster 2018 and 19, and they have their own production schedule, so on and so forth. So once I actually looked at the underlying data for the studios, what the studios were expecting, how many movies came out, how many movies were franchise movies, what's the average revenue for the franchise system, what's the standard deviation of revenues, because if the standard deviation is relatively small, then I can forecast future franchise films based on historic franchise films, and that's what I did. And I found that, you know, everyone was expecting the box office to be down about two or three percent in 2018. My forecast had the box office up about, I think, eight know, percent or so. And the right. box office ended 2018 up about nine percent, I believe. So basically, you're, you're saying that uh, when the big studios release their, their sort of marquee names, that that's the driver. And so it's not really necessarily a secular kind of drift down in cinema attendance it's it's sort of driven more by um what movies are coming out what big movies are coming out and so that's and that insight led you to get long amc at at just the right time exactly right right and you know i think that if you just quiet the noise and look at the data and while you know streaming is big you know they can coexist and you find that you know if the content is there if because there were some studios that didn't do well because their their movies just were not good Whereas most studios actually have a clear production schedule and they're doing well. Everyone thinks that, oh, well, you know, cinema is going down because, you know, attendance is falling every year. You find that, no, that's not the case. When you have these these blockbuster years, attendance increases and average ticket price increases and that helps all everyone in the industry. So that's that's just another example of, you know, looking outside of the company at, you know, at the ecosystem, which directly affects the company and that's something that the market completely missed what, what were the big uh what were the big marquee releases in in 2018 
So actually, Disney Disney is the largest and the most impactful studio of all. So of all the studios, I know the movie you know industry can seem like it's really you know uh, chaotic, and there are, there are a million studios. There are a lot of independent studios, but about ninety plus percent of the uh, box office revenues are derived from only seven studios. So if you analyze those seven, you can get a good feel for you know where they're at health wise, the acceleration or deceleration of growth. And you find that Disney, their market share is about 20 plus percent, <clears throat> excuse me, of the overall box office. And there has not been one year where Disney had a down year and the market was up. And there has not been one year where Disney had an up year and the market was down. So basically, if you really want a handle on where the box office is going, you should look at Disney. And to answer your question, you know, Disney had several major films in 2018. Black Panther was, was a huge breakout hit, over a billion in sales. Of course, you know the Avengers movie was 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 a major hit, and then they had other franchises that really you know augmented that 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 Marvel franchise system, and that really made Disney's revenue increase significantly in 2018, which directly helped the movie theaters. So you you don't really describe yourself as a value investor. You sort of think about value as a component in what you're doing, but that's why you're a contrarian because you're really looking for that. Uh, wide divergence between a sort of trend in the stock price and the underlying trend in the in the right. fundamentals of the company, plus some right. sort of insight into what where it's going to be in a future state. Right, right, yeah. So you know, I actually get this a lot. Um, you know, I, I would say that I'm more aligned with value investing principles than other flavors of investing. However, I do have clear uh, divergence points with value investing. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be careful what I say because I have a lot of, you know, friends who are value investors. Including I know me. you're a value investor, <laughs> right? So I'll be careful with that. I know that Warren Buffett's a value guy. I understand that. Um, but I believe that, you know, our purpose as investors is to generate the highest returns. And if we look at, okay, well, how do we generate the highest returns? We have to look at, well, what drives stock price movement like Stanley Druckenmiller focuses on? And what drives stock price movement uh, would be, you know, expectations, performance relative to expectations, which, you know, that's obvious. But also, you know, I've done quantitative analysis studies that, that, that have proven that the companies that significantly outperform and the companies that significantly underperform, they had a major divergence between um, expected performance and actual performance. And what I find is that that places us. And of course, when we talk about performance, we're talking about fundamentals. That's value, right? You're looking at the actual fundamentals of the company. However, I think that the other side of the equation, expectations, looking at what does the market expect and, in, and taking both of those into consideration uh, when you invest, that to me is the holy grail of investing. And that to me is called contrarian. So, so basically, you're looking for its value. It is sort of value related, but maybe right. you're using the um, – you're kind of trying to use the the – the, t the turn in the, uh, the the fortunes of the company as your catalyst that like that's the time that you want to you want to put the investment on right or even situations where you know there have been companies such as pure storage which was one of my first picks actually that the company was doing really well um, you know tech company they provide flash storage to enterprises who are now transitioning from 
magnetic disks, floppy disk. You know, would you believe that most data that companies have are stored on hard drive, magnetic disks? I would not and, believe that. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's only because, you know, it was so expensive. It was so easy for us to get, you know, these flash drives because the, the unit cost on a consumer level went down a lot. But for corporations, it did not. Well, Pure Storage is a startup that well, they're not a startup anymore. Uh, they were a startup a few years ago that developed the flash technology for the enterprise level. So they were a true disruptor. And when they had their IPO in the fall of 2015, stock did well, and then it did horribly. And, you know, I found them in about March of 2016, I believe, because revenue was growing, you know, immensely. Uh, profitability was improving significantly. So, you know, EPS was improving significantly. Um, you know, I found that that was contrary, and even though the company wasn't having, you know, poor fortunes, it was just that the market had some view that was a divergence from, you know, what I believe the underlying economic story was, so you which do, proved to be true. You do deep research on a company by company, but a lot of this, uh, your your method is based on some other research that you've done more broadly. Did, was that so? You went to Carnegie Mellon, right? And what what did you right. study there? I did an MBA at Carnegie Mellon. So you did an MBA, and then and did you do this? You did this research at, at Carnegie Mellon on the right, right, right. So while I was at, so prior to Carnegie Mellon, I was in accounting. Um, so I studied accounting, undergrad and grad, uh, CPA, all of that. So that 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 has helped tremendously in ways that I probably can't fully appreciate because when I see financial statements, I just it's you know I speak that language, right? That's that's the only training that I had academically. So when I went to business school. I wanted to, you know, augment that accounting uh, perspective with, you know, a quantitative analysis uh, skill set um, and, and also, you know, economic analysis. So while I was at Carnegie Mellon, you know, I really wanted to join a hedge fund. And I thought, hey, if you want to join a hedge fund, you have to be a great stock picker. You have to, you know, have your own value proposition. So with that, while I was, you know, spending an hour in class on schoolwork, I was spending an hour stock picking and researching stocks to, you know, practice and get my skills up. And I eventually got to a point where I said, you know, well, is there some type of pattern between, you know, the stocks that do really well and the stocks that do really horribly? Because up to that point, it just, it all seemed random. And, you know, you turn on CNBC and there are a lot of people talking, but, you know, there was really no circling back to see, hey, were you right? Were you wrong? There was no postmortem analysis. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but who's looking back? And so, you know, while I was developing this skill set at Carnegie Mellon to do quantitative analysis, you know, run regressions, gather large quantities of data and extracting meaning, um, I said, you know what, why don't I, you know, create a project for myself? So, you know, I, I went to the Bloomberg terminal and, you know, I, I ran a query for a stock screener. And basically it consisted of, you know, each year for a, you know, uh, 15 year period that did was. I gathered the um, all of the stocks that had a market cap in between five uh, above five hundred million. Anything below that, I, you know, I, I just thought that they were too, you know, there there was a lot of uh, liquidity there, so there could be other factors there at the time. This was my thinking, and I left out, uh, you know, commodities, biotech, biopharma, these these really niche industries. And what I did was, you know, I looked at, okay, well, what was the, you know, I wanted to see, you know, how did the company perform as far as revenue growth. Uh, profitability growth, uh, and then what were the expectations for these companies? And then I would have a column for the stock price return. So basically, I had you know all of the data points I wanted to observe. There were about forty of them, 
And, you know, there were thousands of companies, obviously, in the market each year. So I ran this regression for each individual year to see is there a pattern between, you know, the, 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 the top five percentile and the bottom five percentile. And what I found with a high degree of statistical certainty was that companies that did really well, they had performance that significantly deviated from expectations, coupled with their stock performance prior to that de- prior to that deviation was the opposite. So if a company had a positive deviation, the stock was negative going into, well, that was very likely in predicting that the stock would do really well and vice versa for the shorts. So after I, you know, found that, you know, I never have deviated from that approach of, okay, well, that that's contrarian. You know, I looked at that and said, okay, well, you're, you're, you're going against the herd. And if you look at it logically, you know, it, it, it makes complete sense. You know, if you're going long a company, everyone is short and you're right, it's going to pay off big and vice versa. So, but you need to be right. You need to be right. That's the big thing, right? Um, and that's where the deep research comes in. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, how are you, when you say expectations, what's the, what, what is that? What's the data line or what, what are you looking at when you're saying expectations? So I quantify expectations using Wall Street's estimates. And of course, that's, that's, that's not the qualitative expectation, the the more, you know, um, if you want a number for expectations, I, I really look at the stock price. You know, if the stock price is going down significantly, that means that there's negative sentiment, right? And vice versa for positive. However, what this quantitative analysis uh, had, had shown and what, you know, lo- logic would show is that even though, you know, investors may not be following Wall Street's recommendations to buy or sell a company, if you look and see, well, if this company beats Wall Street's estimates or misses Wall Street's estimates, the stock price moves. So that shows that investors do care about those 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 baseline numbers that Wall Street has. So I quantify the consensus view as Wall Street's estimates. And sometimes you have companies that beat estimates and the stock doesn't go up or it actually goes down. But that's more of an anomaly than, you know, uh, a principle. So you said uh, before you were talking about Druckenmiller, but Druckenmiller is not your guy. Uh, David Tepper is. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, I'm probably biased, right, because I went to the Tepper School of Business. Um, I had the fortunate opportunity to meet David Tepper, to interview with his firm for an internship. Um, I, I received very positive feedback from, you know, uh, his firm, people at his firm, from him directly, um, you know, just telling me that the stock I pitched, everyone liked it. And, you know, they really appreciated my logic there um, and actually that they had selected me for the internship. But, you know, they had canceled the program, so that didn't work. But that was enough to me for me to see that I had something that was unique and that was different. And interestingly enough, the stock I pitched was a contrarian stock. It was a short on uh, GameStop. And that that was my first flavor of contrarian. And once I saw it just makes sense to me, you know, be contrarian, but do your research. Do your research and be right, because if you're right, then, you know, the reward is big. And also, if you're contrarian, you can just bet that there aren't a lot of people who see the world the way you see it, which helps you in the event that you're right. So, yes, David Tepper is is, is, is my man, um, you know, and he, he's contrarian. You know, anytime that he makes a move, you know, in the earlier years, it was directly contrarian. It was explicitly contrarian where it was, you know, the, the market thought things were going to go one way. He thought the opposite. But now he's his firm is so large that I would say that he's contrarian in that the market may have a positive view on a company, but his view is more positive or, you know, vice versa. So I would say that it's had to augment because of his, because of the size of his firm. 
Um, GameStop's a really interesting name because it's one of those ones that it's screened really cheaply for years and years and years, and it's had this terrifying downward run the entire way through and it's pretty obvious like nobody looks at the stock and thinks well that's a really good long other than the fact that it's kind of quantitatively cheap but can you i mean a short is an interesting um position to put on so walk us through the gamestop short right right so the gamestop short was 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 really interesting in that you know and again I, i was in business school during this time so you know i'm still you know learning as i go and i'm still learning as i go right there there's there's so much more to learn however with gamestop Again, you know, I'm coming from the background of, you know, accounting. So I'm looking at, okay, well, what are the numbers? And I know that these numbers tell a story. Um, I'm really interested in a company's story. Every company has a story. I found that GameStop was a, a situation in which I saw that I thought differently because, you know, people who were more oriented towards finance looked at, you know, you know financial metrics and things like that. But I'm not a finance guy. You know, I'm passionate about economics, microeconomics. So with GameStop, what I did was I focused on, well, what's the underlying microeconomic story? Because if I can get a handle on that and see, you know, where, what's the growth trajectory of this company? Well, eventually that will bleed into, you know, the, the stock. You know, finance is all based on how do you value a business based on certain assumptions. Well, I focus on those assumptions, right? If your assumptions are wrong, it doesn't matter if you have a perfect D- DCF, your assumptions are wrong, garbage in, garbage out, right? So what I found was that, of course, anyone could look and see, okay, GameStop's business model was facing an existential threat in that um, game manufacturers and the um, studios were starting to develop digital downloads for the you know hardware. And what most I don't know if people know this or don't, but while GameStop, most of their revenue comes from new games, 50% of their profits came from the selling of used games. Because, you know, if anyone has had a game before, you know, you buy the game for $50, you go trade it in when you're done with it, and and they give you $10 for it, but then they go and they sell it for $20, $25. I mean, the markup is is huge. So that's that's a great business model. Great job, GameStop, right? However, you know, if people are starting to download the games digitally, well, you know, in T0, which is right now, you know, instead of buying a physical game, you buy the digital game. Well, on T1, when you would normally go back in and trade it in and GameStop would have that 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 inventory for used uh, game sales. Well, they don't have that anymore because you can't go and trade in a digital game. And so while that was the short thesis for years, the problem with the shorts before I found GameStop was that they didn't have a handle on the catalyst. When? When is this going to happen? And when is this going to happen really to me means when is this going to start to show up in the financial statements? And again, you do the deep research, you see the data that is being provided, not by GameStop, because they were being very secretive. Okay, let's let's say conservative with information on digital downloads and things like that. That's a red flag to me. Uh, One book that I read called The Art of the Short Sale, the best investing book I've ever read. Of course, you know, I have I have margin of safety and it's a great book, but I like the art of a short sale. Um, it talks about when you find that management isn't being as as open, you know, you know, if there's great news, companies are going to shout it from the from the rooftop. But if they're being more conservative, that's not there. There's something there. And so with that, you know, OK, that's fine. The company doesn't have to give me this information. I can go other places to get 
this information because the company doesn't exist in, 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 in isolation. There are other businesses out here. So once you go to the earnings calls of the manufacturers and you see what they're saying, you go to the industry experts, you start to interview people who are involved in the industry, you could see that the suppliers of the games were really making a move to get GameStop out of the supply chain, primarily because they receive more profits from digital downloads than the physical games. And also, years before, they had taken GameStop to court because GameStop wasn't sharing any of the profits with them from those used games. And I think they had a sour taste in their mouth because GameStop said, listen, our agreement was that we would buy new games from you. And what we do with the used games, that's what we do in the secondary market. Well, you know, now that, you know, the tables have turned, these suppliers are, you know, they were in no uh, hurry to negotiate with GameStop because GameStop was just a retailer. And when you're getting into a digital space, well, you know, the physical retailer doesn't have as much value. And so that's what I saw was the issue with, with, with GameStop as far as the timing. The rate of digital downloads was increasing significantly, primarily for two reasons. One, technology. As technology advanced, bandwidth uh, levels increased. You could start to actually download games onto your console. The memory increased on the console. The technology, may, technology enabled the transition. Before, the technology just wasn't there to download these huge games. Additionally, the suppliers, with that technology now being enabled, they started to incentivize customers to download digitally. You know, they, 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 they would give 20% discounts if you download it digitally. They would, you know, pre-release if you download it digitally. And, and gamers love games. So if they can get it a week before, a day before, that's a big thing for them. So those two forces really caused the rate of digital downloads to increase. And since that has an inverse relationship with the rate of physical purchases, start to hurt GameStop. And while it took about a year for that to fully show up, because again, T0, you don't really see an impact because, you know, while the top line is, is you know, has headwinds there, you're really going to see the, the impact on the bottom line. And sure enough, you know, after a year of this transition, GameStop stock just started to, you know, descend materially. And, you know, last I checked, you know, it's still doing that. Um, and they actually tried to reposition the company. And when you see these type uh, shenanigans you know something's up and they start to say that they were not a video gaming company they were a uh, refurbisher of consumer electronics because they started this, they started this business to uh, buy used phones and tablets and things like that and refurbish them in their center in Dallas that they did for the games and sell them that's that that's not their bread and butter that's not their core competency they made billions selling video games they were not going to replace the lost billions that were going to come with selling used cell phones and sure enough last time i checked they ditched that business and it's just in free fall so and it gets to a point where you can't you can't pay enough in dividends to make investors overlook just a deteriorating business so you're doing um, enormous amounts of research for each of these positions that you put on. How do you think about sizing positions when you first put them on? How do you think about managing a portfolio? Right. So, you know, the way that I approach portfolio management, you know, which, which includes, you know, sizing, correlation and, and things like that is, you know, I believe in having a concentrated portfolio of about 12 to 15 holdings. I believe that and just even based on, you know, just statistical principles, once, once you have about 15 unique observations, if you will, you've got most of the benefits of diversification. So, you know, once you get into 20, 25, 30, 35, 50, there's something more there, you know, and you're starting to diversify 
um, your time and you only have so much time. And so what I find is that, and I have views on that approach of having 50 positions in your portfolio. I believe that 12 to 15 is enough so long as these stocks are truly um, uncorrelated with each other. And given that I focus on idiosyncratic situations, that by definition means that they're not correlated with each other because, you know, AMC is trading based on what's happening in the box office. Uh, Pure storage is trading on what's happening in the, uh, you know, flash stores industry. Weight Watchers is weight management. So, or Pandora is, you know, streaming. So these are all completely different stories. These stocks weren't related when they had their major sell-offs or, you know, like Overstock had a major, you know, ride up. And so with that, at that point, we can already see that these stocks have broken out of the uh, orbit of being related to the overall market because while the market's up, 20%. These stocks are down 60, 65%. So that's how I approach. And as far as position sizing, I, I believe in equal weighting. If I find that, you know, I, I have more, uh, if I want to go overweight a certain position and underweight a certain position, to me, that means that I probably have more conviction in one and less conviction in the other. And if that's the case, then I need to revisit what I'm doing because I believe in kind of the, the, the six sigma approach of quality, quality, quality. And, you know, like Warren Buffett said, you stay in your area of core competency and you focus on, you know, the balls that you can hit. So you don't have to swing at, you know, all of the pitches that are being thrown. So if I have a basket of 12 to 15, you know, I want all of these to be my high conviction plays, not, you know, if I have a portfolio of 50, these five are my high conviction. Well, then it's like, well, what are those other ones? You know, so that's 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 the way I approach it. So if you have a position like Weight Watchers, which is a, which is up enormously as you hold it, do you trim it back or do you hold it until you sort of decide to get out? How do you manage them? So I, I, I do like to use derivatives to, you know, um, augment trades. Um, so ahead of an earnings call, um, you know, I definitely believe that it's prudent to purchase some calls and puts because, again, these are um, contrarian stocks. So one thing you're going to get from contrarian stocks is volatility. And especially if you believe that, you know, there's material price movement coming in the near future, um, you definitely want to, you know, kind of, you know, augment that trade with, you know, some options on the upside and the downside. And so with that, you know, I view that as kind of um, ancillary. That's not something that is a constant in the portfolio. So I'll, I'll definitely, I guess, trade around a position depending on what's going on with the actual stock. But when we start out at T0, you know, everything is equal weighted. And then as, you know, time goes on, if I find that, you know, it, it, I, I'm going to start to pare down the size of the position, then that means that my conviction of the price improvement from now until, you know, next year, I, I'm not as, 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 I don't have as much conviction in that. And I need to revisit the entire trade because I'm not, I don't believe that, Again, the purpose of an investor is to generate the most significant returns that you can for yourself and your investors. So you can have a stock that, like Weight Watchers, you know, goes up 700%. I wouldn't hold after that because it's not after after you have your returns. It's always about what's the marginal benefit of holding this. You know, it's not about how much have you made on it. You know, in the last year, that's great, but that's done. As you invest, you're investing for the future. So there's always another contrarian stock out there. I look at them like waves. If you find that this wave is starting to crest. Well, get off and go find another wave with that money, and that's how you really get that compounding effect. And so, how long do you do you have like an average holding period? Do you, are they too different to sort of to to have that uh, determination? 
Yeah. So I have an investment horizon of 12 to 18 months. Um, sometimes, you know, it, it plays out much sooner than I expected. But and when I say it plays out, OK, well, you have the 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 catalyst and there's a shock to the stock and then it starts to trend upwards. That's that's what I love. But if you have a situation where, you know, there's a catalyst goes up materially, trends upwards, but then you find that on a technical basis, the stock is kind of you know, waned and it's not, it's not trending upward anymore. It's just kind of like staying where it's at. Um, then you look at what, what are the estimates from Wall Street? If the estimates look reasonable, well, you know, it's over, you know, get off and move on. Um, however, if you find that, you know, it's trending positively and that marginal gain is, is still there to be had and estimates continue to look conservative, then the underlying merits of the position are the same as they were before, you know, the, the, the stock had gone up. So that's how I look at, you know, the, um, you know, when specifically am I going to get out? But I, I want to give it 12 to 18 months to, you know, correct itself and take on life of its own. And also when you're contrarian, you can have a stock that's, you know, up 70%. And, you know, if there's anything that is less than stellar or something that, that kind of echoes an unsubstantiated fear, you can have a sell-off, primarily because people are looking to lock in some gains that they had. Um, for instance, iRobot is a great one. You know, even though the story was solid and it, it remains solid through the story I'm about to tell you, what happened with the stock was, you know, it went up about 70% and proved all of the critics wrong. And then they had a Q3 earnings call. They did wonderfully. However, they sourced some of their manufacturing from China. And there was this is when the initial talks of tariffs were happening. And the stock had lost about 20% just based on them saying that there would be, you know, a 5% hit from tariffs, even though the company had beat and raised their guidance to be significantly above what the street was expecting. I thought, okay, well, one, the stock was up a lot in a small period of time. I'm always leery about that, you know, because easy come, easy go, right? There's not much, you know, support for those price levels. I really appreciate technicals. I'm not a technical guy, but you can extract meaning from the technicals. So once the stock had taken that loss, it trended downward. And then going into the uh, you know Q4 call, it lost all of the gains. And it stayed that way until the until we we're getting towards the most recent call in January. And from December to January, it improved about 40%. And then the call in January went exceptionally well. And now the stock is up a total of 90%. So that's a really volatile story where it's up 70, then even, and then now it's up 90. But overall, the underlying economic story has been the same. So when you're contrarian, expect volatility. So you have to give it time to, you know, you, you have to give the market time to accept that it was wrong. Um, you, uh, earlier, you were talking about when you when you put a position on, you have a core equity holding, and then you have some puts and calls around these. Can you just talk a little bit about how you structure the positions when you put them on? Right, right. So when I'm looking at, you know, these, these uh, derivatives, um, you know, I'm using them for, you know, primarily two reasons. One is is, is to, you know, um, accelerate the returns if there's, you know, some material price movement within a certain period of time, a small period of time, like an earnings call. But also um, as insurance, I'm either using it to ensure the downside if, you know, the call goes against me or the call goes great, but the stock still responds poorly. You know, I, I want a cushion for that but also to lock in gains. So insurance on from losses and insurance to lock in gains ahead of some material price movement for a really nominal price, if you will. So they're more short-term in nature. 
Um, and typically I'm looking at it, it's all based on expectations. So I have models and things like that where, you know, I model, okay, under these scenarios, if the price moves this much, you know, here are all of the option chains, how much, you know, are, are they going to move based on this assumption of price movement? So, you know, I'm really familiar with the Greeks and things like that. So I typically on average, I'm going to get something that's about five to 10% out of the money both ways so that, you know, I can have that momentum on both sides, you know, depending on what happens. And then after the call, once kind of like that wave hits and things fizzle out, you know, you sell the positions and then you reevaluate. I'm typically not in, you know, call options for the long term. If I have an option that is kind of more longer term, it's going to be a put option as a form of, of, of insurance, primarily to locking gains that I have. Um, and while I'm in the early stages of the fund that I'm launching, I'm likely going to have some puts there just as an additional margin of safety. Um, while, you know, the, the, the firm is starting to accumulate profits so that we could start playing with the house's money. Right. So, so Pragmatic has been um, a research shop up to this point. And so you're, you're launching a new fund. Talk a little right, bit about right, that. right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So actually, Pragmatic is now taking on its, you know, I guess it's it, its third life uh, because initially it started as, as a hedge fund. Um, I was in business school and again, I was focused on joining a hedge fund. And, you know, I found that by the time I was about to graduate, I had a really unique way of looking at the world and it had proven to be effective. Logically, you, you could see that, OK, well, if you could be more accurate than Wall Street, then you're, you're going to do well. Um, however, it's great when you can see that actually start to happen. And I was actually able to see firsthand while I was in school just how much information does not go into a lot of the trading decisions that the market makes on a name by name basis. You know, I don't look at the market as this 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 big machine. I look at the market as well. There's a market for AMC stock. There's a market for Weight Watcher stock, and there's a market for all of these stocks. It's an auction, right? So it's like while the overall stock market is an auction house, this auction house has a bunch of rooms, and I want to go in the rooms where I can you know gain an information advantage on. So with that, I found you know what it's in my best interest to you know I develop a reputation within my local city, Pittsburgh for being a great contract stock picker. And I was coming out of a great institution, especially in Pittsburgh. So with that, I was able to, you know, uh, raise some capital from my local network uh, to start a fund as kind of a proof of concept, beta, if you will. And with that, I was able to successfully prove that I could pick contract stocks. The average stock that I selected with the fund had an improvement of 85% in one year. And I had about a 93% accuracy rate and actually, you know, picking these stocks. It wasn't a situation where you had kind of two home runs and they covered the losses of, you know, 13, you know, things that went completely wrong, right? So, you know, but I found that, you know, if I wanted to really grow the firm, I needed to extend beyond Pittsburgh and I needed to get my name out there. And while I did really well with the fund, my, 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 my asset base was, was, was too low to really be sustainable. So I took a step back and I said, hey, listen, you know, I've been selling my research on the side to hedge funds that I've been you know, in touch with while I was in business school for recruiting purposes uh, because they saw the value of my research and they saw it as a way to augment their underlying you know, um, portfolio management process. So what I did was I you know, put the fund in hibernation, if you will, and I launched Pragmatic Conclusions. And Pragmatic Conclusions was a research business, a specialized research business. And it consisted of providing uh, three deep research reports to, you know, hedge fund subscribers each month for a subscription fee. And the way I positioned this was this is, you know, a fraction of the cost of hiring a new analyst and you're getting differentiated research. You know, if you bring on an analyst, 
they're going to follow orders that you give them. But if you take my research, this is this is unique and it's fresh and it's novel. And so, you know, that helped a lot. And then I joined some zero to really, you know, get the name out there more and things like that. And I was able to get a lot of subscribers from people from funds on some zero seeing how well uh, research my names were. It's not just that I was right. I was right for the right reasons. That's that's really important. Um, and my research reports are, are extensive and, you know, you can, you know, I want you to finish reading my research reports and, and feel like you have an understanding of the company and the stock versus having more questions than answers. And with that, you know, as my rankings improve material in some zero, my number of subscribers, my number of subscribers materially improved as well. And so I got to a point last August where I said, OK, well, I, of course, I love doing research. Running a research business is a business in and of itself. And my core passion is investing. It's research for the purposes of investing. So that's when I said, okay, I've got a name now. I've got more of a, of a reputation now. 2018 is going phenomenally well for me. Even though the market isn't doing too well, you know, it's time to pivot and get back to raising capital so I can get back to launching the fund so I can get to where I'm going, which, you know, I want to be one of my generation's most successful investors. And I believe that I have a unique approach to do this. And it's an approach that is evergreen, basically meaning that it doesn't matter what the market conditions are because my approach is idiosyncratic. It's not systematic. If it's systematic, then you have to focus on macro. And that's a lot more difficult to understand. But if it's idiosyncratic, you're looking at microeconomics. Well, basic micro microeconomic principles will always exist, right? So if you focus on that, that's going to be evergreen. So that's what I'm focused on now is getting the firm back to being active and, you know, just showing the world what we can do at Pragmatic. Uh, so um, one of the, the, the last names that you mentioned that I just want to follow up on because it's a, a Pandora is a streaming yeah. service that I use. Uh, I love the service. I don't know the stock that well. So maybe you just give us a little flavor of uh, Pandora. Right, right. And, you know, funny thing about Pandora, I love the service as well. Um, However, when I found the stock, I was I was primarily listening listening to Spotify because the last I remembered, uh, Pandora was more just internet radio. They didn't have on demand music, and I found Pandora from the screen. You know, I saw that okay. Well, the screen saw that you know revenues were increasing, um, looked like a healthy business, and the stock had gone down about 65 percent. This is like the, the the sweet spot that I found. It wasn't planned. It just happens that the average stock that I moved forward with. They lost about 60, 65% uh, within one year. So that to me is kind of like <laughs> like a, a signal, a major signal. Hey, look at this. The market may be right in selling off, but let's look at this. So, and again, you know, as a consumer, I thought, oh, you know, Spotify is doing great. They can't be good for Pandora. Um, see, the stock has gone down 60, 65%, maybe for a reason. When I looked, I found that, well, yes, there was a reason. The company started to get more focused on building their on-demand platform, and they started to let their underlying uh, ad tech uh, capabilities fall behind, and they were missing out on a lot of ad revenues that were out there because Pandora is actually an advertising business. That's, that's really what they are. Um, they are the largest holder of digital uh, advertising industry in the world, um, audio. And what I found was that this is the bread and butter for them, not on-demand music and subscriptions and things like that. And by the time I found the company, they had already recognized that, hey, listen, we made a mistake by letting our bread and butter kind of, you know, get a little stale while focusing on this because 
that's the talk of the town, Spotify, and they wanted to compete there. And once I started to do the research, I found that they brought in a great new CEO from Sling TV um, who was really keen on getting the ad technologies back up to par. And specifically, there's an area of ad technology by the name of programmatic. And historically, advertisers would manually purchase uh, advertising slots via TV, radio, internet, um, whereas pro programmatic was a way for them to um, automatically purchase advertising slots. And it, it, it accelerated the um, the amount of purchases that were happening in the ad industry. Well, and th this market had grown to be about you know, a billion dollar market, specifically in the digital space. And Pandora had no exposure to it because they didn't develop the technology to be able to support this. So there's just so much uh, revenue that they were just missing out on because you know they weren't supplying what you know their market needed. Well, they got that under control. You know they made an acquisition to really help get the tech up, and sure enough, you know once the you know subscriber, once the average user base number started to stabilize, and they started to have other incentives for people to you know interact with the app. So if you don't want to pay a monthly subscription fee, if you watch a video ad, you can have the premium features for an hour. What that did was that, and Pandora would get money from that. So they were accelerating the advertising revenue. And sure enough, what happened was the market saw that, you know, they were wrong and that Pandora started to materially beat earnings estimates because everyone was projecting that, you know, Pandora was in a slow decline and they had an existential, an existential threat. So once the company started to materially beat, you know, revenue and earnings projections, the stock went from about 450 when I found it to a height of about 920, 930. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Sirius came in and, you know, put a bid in to buy the company, which great for them because, you know, it's a great company and this is a great time to have Pandora. Um, however, um, it, at that point, the stock was no longer trading based on Pandora's underlying fundamentals and, and what the market expected for Pandora. It was now trading on the market's view on Sirius, which I had a much wasn't interested in serious at all. They're two completely different stories. And so what happened was, you know, you 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 saw a cap on how much the stock would go up because no matter and even after that, Pandora still had earnings calls that blew estimates out of the water. And while the stock had gone up from four fifty to over nine, you know, that's over hundred percent. I think Pandora had so much more room to run if not for that you know, serious, uh, I call it interference, but I get it. You know, this is a valuable company and they wanted it, <clears throat> excuse me. But what happened was, you know, once they were finally taken out, uh, that, you know, it was for about $8 and 10 cents or something like that. So it's still a, a, a major gain. You know, I found Pandora in about, I think April or May of 2018. So, you know, a, a great run. Um, but I'm an investor, you know, and I look and I say that was a great run, but it could have been so much better. But the underlying microeconomic story was solid. You, know, you have a company that people don't really understand the company. They don't really understand how they make their money. They don't really understand what are the differences, what, what's their value proposition in their market. Once this company gets a handle on their value proposition and they start focusing on it, it'll show up in the numbers. And once it shows up in the numbers, the market has no choice but to correct itself. And that's what happened with Pandora. So... Uh that's getting close to the time that we've got. Uh, I really appreciate you spending some time uh, discussing. I think you've got a fascinating approach uh, based on some deep research individual, in, in individual positions uh, and some sort of overarching research, which is all equally fascinating. And, it's, and, and the results are borne out in those some zero performance, like 75% average performance 
of the stocks you picked in there and uh, last on a rolling last 12 month basis you've been topping those rankings so congratulations right. on that w welcome to los angeles man I'm, I'm very happy to have somebody else out here who thank i can you. chat with thank about this stuff if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that so you can, you know, of course, you know, get in touch with me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on SumZero. Uh, also through the website, pragmaticcap.com. You know, if you want to have a conversation with me, you know, I'm, uh, you know, my contact information is on there. That's definitely the best way to get in touch with me. But I definitely recommend, you know, for people to get on to, you know, SumZero and uh, see the research for themselves. I've, I've got a lot of the research on the website as well. Um, but I think that the research itself just, just it, you know, it speaks for itself, you know. And uh, I, I hope that, you know, going forward, you know, what, what we both can do is, you know, continue to, um, you know, offer a unique perspective on investing. I think there's a lot of hurting in investing. And I think that that significantly uh, impairs an investor's ability to generate, you know, market beating returns. It's, it's difficult to beat the market if you're investing with the market. And I think that, that the underlying driver of that is this, this psychology, whereas I think most investors focus on, you know, what they see as valuable and what they see as a valuation metric uh, versus, well, the market is your is your customer, if you will. One period they're you know, they're um, you're their customer. The next period, it's your customer. So you have to know your customer. And I think that instead of focusing on, you know, if you like this business or don't like the business, let's just focus on the numbers and say, well, what the, what is the market expecting and what will the market pay if this happens, if that happens, if that happens? And kind of base it on that. So I'm looking forward to, you know, kind of starting a new narrative on, you know, investing and, you know, helping people to find, you know, their unique approach uh, to really shine as investors. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I can't wait to, to see what you do. Um, Mark Jones of Pragmatic Capital. Thank you very thank much. You thank you for having me. Take care.